Now, when I think of uh, fighting against sin, um, I often think of a book called Men uh, Against Fire. And this book, it was written by a military historian who at World War II, what he did is he studied soldiers as they went into combat and what their expectations were. And then he analyzed what their actual experience was when they came off the battlefield. And his findings, they were really surprising. What he discovered was that in most cases, as these soldiers were headed into battle, they thought that when they heard the sound of fire, first of all, they'd be surrounded with comrades. That the adrenaline, it would be pumping. It would feel a lot like maybe having a big football match. And all of your emotions are in it and they sustain you. They thought that they'd have all the, the basic character and courage that's needed such that they could use their weapons, they could fight bravely. Now what's interesting is, in the vast majority of cases, the experience was the opposite of this. What actually happened to soldiers is the first time they heard the sound of fire, everybody would drop down. And as soon as everybody dropped to the ground, they immediately lost visibility. They couldn't see any of their comrades. And they couldn't communicate to anybody. Rather than that adrenaline, what flooded their heart was actual fear. And the really stunning analysis that uh, this writer, uh, his name was Slam Marshall, what he made in this book was that actually only 25% of these soldiers even fired their weapon. Now when I think of that, it, it's kind of a parable for me for how I think of Christians fighting against sin. One of the things I think is really strange, for some reason in good evangelical churches, if you're a member of a good evangelical church, you will find that over the course of two or three years, you will have opportunities to have someone come in and teach you, say, about evangelism. It's going to happen. You will have opportunities. Somebody coming in and trying to encourage you to be more prayerful. That'll happen. You'll have somebody who will come in. They'll tell you to be more mindful of maybe those that are uh, homeless. But what can happen, not just over years, but decades, you can sit in a good evangelical church and nobody ever takes up the topic, how do you fight against sin using the resources of the gospel? And that's the topic we want to take up. And that's why we've got to sit in Romans 6, because this is the most sustained treatment of that topic anywhere in the whole of the Bible. Now, what we're going to be doing in these three uh, sessions is we're going to look at three barriers to fighting against sin. And by barriers, I really mean mindsets. Uh, there will be some of you tonight who one of the great barriers is just a sense of despair. You've been kicked in the teeth so many times that honestly you feel like it's just not worth getting up and trying again. There'll be others here, and it's not so much the despair, it's just the indifference. I'd like to say this isn't the case, but there will be some that honestly, you're more passionate about a whole lot of things, maybe even just a football club, than you are actually about pursuing holiness and putting sin to death in your life. And then there'll be others who, you know, there's this sense of just negligence that in a sense you know there's things that you ought to be doing, but again, you're just distracted, or maybe you don't have the, the skill, you don't have the tactics that you need from the gospel to be able to push back sin. So each of these sessions will take up a different mindset. And the one that we want to think about this evening is this mindset of despair. Now, when I say despair, I mean hopelessness. Ask yourself a question, uh, what would be the attitude that would cause Ukraine to give up the war? To just surrender to Russia? It would be the moment that they thought they had no chance of victory. 
The moment that despair or hopelessness sinks into your heart, you put up the white flag and you just give up. Now, you need to know that we've got an enemy. And what the enemy loves us to do is to begin to believe certain lies that when you start to believe these lies, they begin to reinforce this deeper mindset of uh, despair. So let me just pick out some of the lies. These are lies that have crossed your mind before. I know they have. One of them is, I'm just too far gone. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking uh, in Lewis, up off the west coast of Scotland, on the issue of pornography. The whole lot of people, men and women, with pornography, they've fallen down so many times that it just really does feel like, I'm just too deep in this thing. And when you have that attitude of despair, you just end up going back into the ditch that you've fallen into. Another lie that again you'll hear whispered in your ear, that God is all justice, he's no mercy. There's this famous icon, St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt, and it's this interesting picture of Jesus. And on one side, he looks really severe. You see his justice. If you cover that side, the other side, he looks really merciful. There's some Christians who walk around with the conception of Jesus where his mercy is covered. All they can see is the justice of God. And when you just feel like you've got so many sins against you and you feel that weight of condemnation, again, that leaves you in that place of despair. Another lie. I've had somebody tell me this not too long ago. I've already tried the gospel and it didn't work. We're going to have to come back to that one. Because that lie suggests that the person hasn't really understood the gospel. They think it's something you just try and move on. One last lie. Maybe you thought it. If you've not thought it, a friend of yours has. This is one of the ones that's really sinister. It's when sin is not so much driven by pleasure but by pain. But that thought that I need this sin to cope with life. That God's grace is not sufficient. I need this to numb my pain. And if you took it away, I couldn't cope with life any longer. I wouldn't have the resources that I need to face tomorrow. Now, despair, this is a real problem. And so what I hope for tonight is that you walk out not with an attitude of despair, but with an attitude of hope. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is the hope that he had, and not in the context I'm thinking of sin, but if you think about evangelism, how many times did he get stoned? Or beaten up. And yet what does he do? He comes out of the rubble and he goes back into the city. It's because he understood the power of God. And that same power that drove him again and again and again to evangelize people believing that the gospel could change lives. That's the kind of hope that we need when it comes to this battle against sin. Now what we're going to do, what we've got to do is drop into this text and we need to really rediscover what I would call the defiant hope of the Christian life. Now to be able to understand this, we've got to understand the background of Paul's thought in this passage. So we more or less have to work our way through the gospel, reminding ourselves what's the human condition apart from Christ? What exactly did Jesus do? And then we can get to the whole, what are the implications of this for my life? But we've got to begin with this human condition outside of Christ. And I know this is a little bit complicated, but we need to wrestle with three terms. They're all related in Paul's mind. This is sin, it's death, 
and it's the law. Now, when Paul talks about sin, he's talking about that human propensity to make self-destructive choices. And I know you see that in your own heart. And I know that you've experienced in the past that moment where you're sitting there and you have this thought, I should do X. And then you have that thought, wait, last time I did X, remember how I felt. And then you have that next thought that says, well, I'm going to do it anyway. There's something deeply broken within us that impels us toward making choices that in the end, as Paul later on talks about, they lead to shame, they lead to pain, they lead to misery, and yet we keep drinking out of that trough again and again. That's sin. Now, our condition outside of Christ is not just that we have this propensity towards self-destruction, but we're actually born into this kingdom where sin actually reigns. We shouldn't be surprised outside of Christ, that people develop really destructive habits. I'll speak from a man. You think of just the the natural lust that men struggle with, always have struggled with. Now, when I was a young uh, child, if you really wanted the bad stuff, the videos, you had to go to these really awkward stores, you know, off the highways in the United States that were adult video stores. The whole thought is like, if you went into that place and someone saw you coming out, oh, the shame and the embarrassment. But we live in such a world where what we've done is we take the adult video store, we put it online, and then we create an access point in our pocket called a smartphone that you can get all the same content, but at a moment's notice, and nobody ever sees. The picture that Paul paints is, We're not just broken on the inside. We live in this world that's a kingdom, and he actually speaks of us as being slaves of sin. That's our natural condition. So we're broken on the inside. We're living in a world that is cultivating these self-destructive tendencies. And then there's this whole truth of the law. And in Paul's mind, what does the law do? It does a few things. Each of them is really important. One thing the law does is it exposes the sin within our heart. So again, if I just go back to the picture of lust, you might think, well, everybody struggles with lust. It can't be that big of a deal. And then all of a sudden, God lays down a commandment and tells us that, no, lust is a sin. And you realize you're a lot sicker than you thought. I don't just have a cold. I've got cancer within my heart. So the law exposes us. But the law does more. It doesn't just expose, it actually sentences us and tells us that the wages of that sin, it's death. It's capital punishment. That's where he ends in this chapter. The wages of sin are death. But then the law does one other thing, and this is probably the most shocking of all. Is that when you're living in what he calls under law, there's this way in which the law agitates the sinful desire. You know how this is. When you're told not to do something, for some reason it makes you want to do it even more. Now what I want you to see from all of this is, what this tells us is despair is the normal condition of the human life outside of Jesus. Everybody who doesn't know Jesus, who has sinful propensities in their heart, that's living in a kingdom of death, and that is under the law, they don't have any hope. 
The question is, how do we get from that starting place and get to a place where we do have hope? That's the question we've got to figure out. The answer in Paul's mind is you need to understand the significance of the death, really the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the people of God. And so let's just start with the life of Jesus. What does this have to do with the fight against sin? Now, the amazing thing about the incarnation, God taking flesh, is that God's born into this realm of death that we live in. But let me be honest. When most of us think of Jesus and his temptation, we think he got by lightly. Honestly, we picture Jesus kind of being like one of those monks that goes off and lives in a somewhat secluded environment such that the kind of, you know, combat we face, the severity of our spiritual trial, he didn't live in that world. How bad was Palestine 2,000 years ago? What we need to understand is that it's not just that Jesus experienced temptation, he experienced temptation at its worst and never sinned. You think about what it would be like to have women putting feet or putting perfume on your feet. You talk about a situation that could be subject to spiritual abuse, there it is, and yet there was no lust in his heart. You think of the kind of vanity that feeds us, that pushes us towards success and career. What would it be like to walk down the street and everyone would be chanting your name, saying that you're the much-awaited king? Oh my goodness, you want to fuel, if there's any pride in your heart, it just flam, you know, flames up at that moment. Imagine actually being the son of God and being tried by puppet kings like Pilate and Herod in subjecting yourself to their ruling over you. That would make me really, really, really angry. If I spent three years gathering a group of followers and pouring myself out for them, and then they deny me, and they betray me, and they flee from me, again, just think what that would do to your heart. What we have to realize is Jesus went into the harshest conditions of temptation, and he did not sin. And it's not just that he didn't sin, he perfectly fulfilled righteous. And this is fundamental, because what we need to understand is you don't have the resources in you to put the least of sin to death. It's only if someone else has such strength that we have hope. And that's what we see. We see through his life that he has absolute strength over sin. And then what happens on the cross? What happens at the cross is that penalty that should have fallen on us. It doesn't. Because it fell on him. Maybe you know the story of Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist. You know, that story from earlier in his life where he was convicted with some other men for a conspiracy. He was supposed to be shot with these other men. They spent the night before, imagine the agony of sitting in prison knowing the next day you're going to be shot. Not just that, they were marched out. They were put in position, the guys lined up, they had their guns ready. He didn't know that the czar had sent a note saying that actually these men 
the sentence had been changed. They were headed off to Siberia. What would it feel like to today have a death sentence looming over you? Because there was one. But the thing about Jesus' death is that that sentence, it fell on him. It didn't fall on us. And so what we see is first, again, he perfectly has the strength to fulfill righteousness. And then that penalty of sin, our sin, it falls on him. But what we also need to know is that when Jesus, when he resurrects, what he actually does is he inaugurates another kingdom. Such that now what there are in this world is there's two kingdoms, they're not one. There's not just that kingdom of death, that condition that we lived in outside of Christ. There's another kingdom under Christ. And what Jesus does when someone puts their trust in Him, He lifts the penalty for their sin because it fell on Him. But equally, He takes His Spirit and He pours it out into their heart. And the significance of that, I'm just trying to pull some of this together for you. The significance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer in the context of fighting against sin is that the very strength that enabled Jesus to resist all temptation and fulfill all righteousness is now present in you. This is the basic framework for understanding why we have hope in Christ. But that's not all. What you also need to understand is what Paul says, you see this in verse 14, is that we're not under law, but we're under grace. Let me try to explain to you this difference between what it's like to be under the law and under grace. The best way I can explain it to you is think of a marriage. Think of an abusive spouse and think of a perfect loving spouse. Outside of Christ, you were under sin. Sin could bully you. It could make you do its bidding. But because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that marriage was annulled. You've been married to a loving spouse, a good spouse, a spouse that will provide for every need you have. And what it means to be under grace is that all of the mercy, all of the compassion, all of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the exact grace that communicated health and that did miracles when He walked in this world, that that same heart is now present to you. And whenever you need help, he's waiting. He's hungry. He's willing to give you the grace that you need for your hour of temptation. But that's not all. There's one more piece that we just have to understand and understand the framework for this battle against sin. Besides that penalty being lifted, besides the Holy Spirit being put in our life, besides having this intimate relationship under the grace of the Lord Jesus where He's willing us to give us all that we need for everyday Christianity, there's one more thing we've got. It's a promise. It's amazing. So many Christians read verse 14 wrong. It says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Or some translations, sin will not have dominion over you. That's not wishful thinking. Jesus is going to finish what he began. He's going to get the victory. 
When all the dust settles, it doesn't matter how many times your nose has been pushed down into the dirt, He's going to win. He's going to win with you. And it's that promise, and it's that grace, and it's that Holy Spirit that when you realize this is the basic framework for the Christian life, you realize, as Christians, we can't not have hope in this battle against sin. So let's move on. Again, i got to give you all the basic framework of the truth. What I want us to do is I want us to take all of that truth, and I realize this is truth you've heard before. But I want us to take that truth, and I want us to apply it to this problem of despair, despair that you very well may, may feel against sin even tonight. Now, what I want you to see is the problem of despair when we're talking about the battle against sin. The problem of despair is ultimately a problem of detachment. You feel despair when you feel disconnected from the Lord Jesus Christ and as if you're on your own to face this enemy. And what I want you to see is how far Paul labors to show the union that we have with Jesus in this passage. Look at verse 3. It's a rhetorical question. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as He was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we've been united with Him in the death like His, certainly we also shall be united in a resurrection like His. Paul wants you to know that what is true of Jesus is true of His people. What's true of Christ is true of the Christian. So let's think, what are the implications of that fact for those moments where we feel despair? Here's one. If you realize this connection you have with Jesus, you realize that it's the experience of Christ, not your personal experience, that defines your relationship with sin. It doesn't matter if you've fallen 10,000 times. If you are wedded to Jesus, your relationship with sin is not determined by those 10,000 failures. It's determined for, by the once and for all death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on. That's what he says. The fact that he's been raised from the dead, he's never going to die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. If it doesn't have dominion over him, it doesn't have dominion over us. Another critical implication of this union we have with Jesus, it's that every day in Christ is a brand new day. There's no hangover of guilt from yesterday. There's no inevitability of sin. That because I've created this habit, it'll never be broken. Anybody who thinks that they are trapped in an inevitable cycle of sin, needs to look back down and read verse 4. 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You wake up, you confess your sins, you ask for the grace of God, and it's a brand new day as a Christian. That's a wonderful gift. But here's another implication that pushes back that cloud of despair. It's the realization that the Father who purchased me with the blood of Jesus, that He will not withhold any good and necessary gift to finish what He has started in my life. That's what he says in verse 5. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus does not date and then find out that you're a sinner and break up. He knew we were all whores before he got into this thing. And yet he loved us and he gave himself to us in the infidelity he still sees. It's not that he tolerates it. It's not that he's okay with it. He's going to finish it. He's going to raise us up. He's going to have the victory over sin in our life. Just as He had a victory over the grave. In all that we need, the Father who gave the Son, after having seen the blood of His Son at Calvary, is He really going to say, no, no. You're asking me for self-control? That's way too much. No. He's so deeply invested in this project. All the pennies that are left of grace. And on his end, it's pennies compared to what he's given in Jesus. He's going to give all that we need. Every good and necessary gift. Another implication of this union we have with Christ, I've referred to it already, I'll refer to it again because it's such good news. It's that when Paul says that we're under grace at the end of verse 14... That means we are in the care of a loving spouse. When you think of the grace of God, the old Puritan John Owen was right. The grace of God is Jesus. That's what the grace is. To be under grace is to be under Jesus. It's to be under the groom, the bridegroom who loves us. And he's going to take care of us. And He wants us to be free from our sin even more than we want to be free from our sin. And that's the one who's guiding us and leading us through this life. And so when you just line up all of these implications, what I want you to see, I hope this is loud and clear. Despair. That feeling of hopelessness in the face of sin. It has no place in the heart of a Christian. There's an American football coach, and I don't watch American football, but his name's Pete Carroll. I mean, he's won at every level. University or college football is a big deal in the States. He's won all those championships. He's gone on to the professionals. He's won the Super Bowl. He's won it all. People who uh, know Pete Carroll, they say he's a little bit crazy because one of the things about Pete Carroll is it doesn't matter what he does, he always thinks he's going to win. So he could go up against a professional table tennis player. And the crazy thing about Pete Carroll is that he thinks he's going to win the match. He could play the world's best chess player. And there's just something crazy about Pete Carroll. He thinks he's going to beat this chess master. Now, we don't want any arrogance. We don't want any self-dependence. 
But when you're backed by the grace of God, there ought to be a little something of Pete Carroll and every Christian where it doesn't matter what the battle is, what the sin is in our heart, how many times we fail, that we actually think today, we're going to beat this sin. Not because of my strength. Certainly not due to my traffic record. Solely because of the Savior who loved me and the Spirit who indwells me in the grace of God that's being poured out right now. Today is a day of victory. Why not? Ought to be the attitude that we have toward sin. Now, just as we start to kind of move out, I want to take up a hard question. Again, there's probably somebody in this room, you know all of this already. I've not told you anything new. And yet you're still struggling with despair. And you feel despair. Let's make it really focused against a particular sin. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's gluttony. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's greed. But when you think of that particular sin, you feel despair. What would I say to you? I pick out that word feel. And have us dissect it. One of the things Paul says in this passage, you can go to verse 11 and see it. In this battle, he says that we must consider or reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say we must feel dead. We might feel that sin is very much alive in our hearts. But we're to reckon ourselves dead. We're to base our convictions on the truth of the gospel, not the feelings of our heart. And so if you feel despair, what you need to do is preach the gospel to yourself again. And this is the problem with my friend who told me not that long ago, I've tried the gospel and it didn't work. He doesn't understand. It's not a life hack. It's not you hear it once and then your problem goes away. This is something for such a battle, it's an everyday reality. Against your feelings, you tell yourself the truth and base your status and your understanding on reality, gospel reality, not the feelings that come in and out of your heart. Now again, one more. What about that person? Remember some of these lies that I picked up early on. That person who just feels too far gone. That again, you have persisted in this not for days and weeks and months, not even years. It might be decades. And deep in your heart, you think that this is never going to be defeated. Let me end with this. Everybody knows Churchill's Dunkirk speech. We all love Churchill's Dunkirk speech. The funny thing to me about Churchill's Dunkirk speech is everybody stops too soon. The best part of the speech is right after what everybody reads. Let me just read it to you. You'll remember the main bit, but let's just look again at what he said afterward. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We will never surrender. 
I got tingles. I mean, that's like Rocky Balboa, right? This is so amazing. But you know what? For a Christian, the best thing he says comes right after. He says, even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on this struggle until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Does that not sound like gospel truth? That even if that day comes, And there's a sin that we've not fully grappled with in this life. The hope of the gospel is that the new world, with all of its power, is breaking in. And that when God resurrects us in his new creation, sin will be no more. He's going to get the victory. And it's not based on your initiative. It's not based on your track record. It's not based on your in our resources, it's based on His righteousness, His promises, and what He has already declared that He will do among His people. Let me quote again, sin will have no dominion over you. That's what God tells us in His Word. Let's pray. Father, we love being Christians. We love knowing your son, Jesus. We love having the gospel. We love not being trapped with a broken heart and a broken world in the hand of the evil one. We love that your kingdom has already broken into this world and that you've done a mighty work just revealing that love to us. We thank you that despair has no right to the heart of a believer. And Father, I pray for those this evening who've bought in to whatever degree to the live Satan that they're trapped in their sin. Lord, might there be a sense of freedom. Not freedom because anything has necessarily changed in their life. But in the same way, when a battle is won, a war is declared to be a victory, that such is the resurrection of Jesus. That there has been a victory over sin. And even if that outworking of the victory hasn't perfectly yet come into our life, the final victory is assured. You will be all in all. We will be made righteous like Jesus. There will be a day that we sin no more. And Lord, might we count it a privilege, not a burden, to bear your standard and to do what we can in this life to see sin put to death through the power of your Spirit in us to grow in righteousness. Lord, might your love just be poured out into our heart. And might we walk away with a greater sense of freedom and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. We ask this in his name. Amen.